0: In this episode of the Too Fit Podcast...
1: you got to fucking love the process because you're going to continually learn shit. If you keep learning shit, you keep improving it, then that's mastery. But people who try to climb the mountain too fast, I can tell you it doesn't look too good up there. But when you get there after loving the process, it's very sweet look on the other side.
2: Are you ready to
0: push the boundaries of performance mentally, physically, and everywhere in between? Welcome to the Too Fit Podcast, where the Too Fit guys uncover the tips tools and tactics from elite performers in the fields of health, nutrition, athletics and business that will set you up for success, deliver results and help you on your journey to becoming too fit. Now, let's get started with your hosts, Jake and Josh, the Too Fit Guys.
2: Well, James, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us
0: today. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, James, we know you've been in the fitness realm a long time, and over that time, you've done a lot of study and self-study, and I'd just be curious to know, what is your definition of fitness? What have you come to in regards to your definition of fitness?
1: Yeah, uh, well, the one that I use that uh, I get coaches to remember, it's a journey of, really, that's the the main wording that I use within the definition of fitness, it's a journey. A journey of people looking for their max physical potential that's going to lead them to... Uh, longevity and discovering purpose. So, you know, um, I use the words and I can explain it for you if you want. Sure. I yeah, words, absolutely. I use the word journey because, you know, the theories based upon biology or mathematical models of fitness is simply just reproduction and, and survival. But obviously in a fitness world, that sounds too simple, you know, especially for so many people that are involved in actual physical training and trying to improve their physical state. Um, so I'm biased in my equation for that. I'm fully aware of that, but I call it a journey because it, there's so much angles and stories to the whole process to try to figure out what you're going to do to help yourself live long and prosper. So second, I use physical potential So because if people, you know, search towards what their maximum physical potential is, that doesn't mean they got to try to kill themselves, to be the fittest person possible, but towards their max physical potential, I believe that should lead towards, you know, some good things long-term.
2: James from like a personal note that reminds me a lot of the golf coach I used to have always talked about the process you know it was never about the tournament coming up or even that day of practice but it was about falling in love with the process you know and you had to have that routine on the driving range on the golf course and it was just this evolutionary approach that never ended and it was kind yeah. of like you're just always in the process you you may be improving and you may be getting worse at times but it's all about the process
1: yeah the I just was watching a video this morning that you may have seen going to the interwebs of Simon Sinek talking about generational differences and people learning. And uh, if not, I'd suggest you search that out, but because he says what we all know to be true, but he just says it so eloquently about the point you're talking about. I think there's so many like to take a 70 year old and to say, you know, what do you think about the journey? And you take a 50 year old and say, what do you think about the journey? You take a 25 year old and say, well, what do you think about the journey? Take a 15 year old and ask them about the journey and their definition of journey of all those people are completely different. So you can understand there's generational differences of patience and time that needs to be put into things, which I really love with the comment you just made, which is the reason why I call it a journey. I think by calling it a journey, people start recognizing that it's not like becoming friends with someone on Facebook. It's not superficial. It's like shit, you gotta put time in to develop. And it's a long game process in order to climb that mountain, you know?
0: I like it. So what was the biggest paradigm shift that's occurred over your time in fitness in your training philosophy.
1: Yeah, shift. Um, well, I don't think it was my uh doing because I'm so to give you context, I'm gonna be 43 in a couple of weeks, born in 1974. And so when I was 18, you know, the whole world was my world in my head, right? Like no who no one else mattered, and it was just all about me, which I'm sure well, I'm not gonna put words in your mouth, but you may have <laughs> felt pieces of that before you're unbreakable, you know, fearless. Sure, this is all sure. my shit. What am I going to do? How what do I get out of this? Where well, I was an athlete that I got injured and then I recognized, holy shit, without my athleticism and my physical ability, I'm just a number, you know, I'm just another human, you know, so that kind of like punched me in the face of a shift really in, in like my thinking around fitness. But I got to give credit to, to CrossFit because I'd learned a lot, you know, just through my own self-practice of all the things that were that were accessible to the coach and trainer, you know, up to 2003, 2004, I'd spent 10 years already then just like honing my trade and like doing all the shit that everyone does, you know. And then this CrossFit shift in functional fitness, not just functional fitness, we were doing functional fitness for 10 years, but functional fitness with intensity totally like flipped some things. All for the good, you know, all for good. So that was one of the shift that wasn't my responsibility. But I gotta say, that was one that happened.
2: James, I've heard you say before. You know, stand on the shoulder of giants. Who are some of your mentors throughout your fitness journey thus far? Yeah, I just spoke to someone about that
1: uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I, um, hopefully, I'll remember some some names now. Now that I was asked before, and I've, I've forgotten. But uh, Charles Poliquin was uh, you know a mentor of mine within uh, the really program design field. So the guy. I mean, like him or not, just like a lot of people who are in fitness, you know, you got to be vilified in order to be doing something that, you know, people don't agree with. So um, him and Ian King, I think for program design, Ian King's Australian strength coach, Louis Simmons and his dedication to his trade. You know, I like his style or his readings, or I work with Dave Tate, you know, impersonally as a client to kind of learn the system as well. Charles Staley back in the day was someone who on a blip of time within the strength conditioning world had some uh, awesome things to to offer. Uh, Paul Cech worked closely with him as well. The initial years when he was starting his certification program and his internships, I'd say at that period of time, uh, those folks had major impact for me on uh, areas of, you know,
2: behavior and physical training and uh, preparation and things like that. I'm curious, before kind of this evolution or come, you know, when CrossFit came to be, Had you ever seen or working with some of those mentors, anyone putting together program design in that capacity with Olympic lifting, high intensity, those type of modalities together?
1: Yeah, not anyone that I work with specifically, but it was definitely happening. So the functional fitness movement that happened in the mid-90s kind of gave everyone the okay to be like, you know what, you can do different shit than just bodybuilding that prepares people for strength preparation. So there was really like the weightlifting group, so Olympic weightlifting group. And then there was like bodybuilders and powerlifters and fitness junkies all junked into one and they're all doing the same shit. So, but when, when this functional fitness thing came with people were like investigating Bosu balls and the, the back pain shit was coming out and everyone was like, Oh my God, these stabilizers in the joints. And this is what pain leads to. And we got to go this quasi anti-pain you know, physical therapy model of corrective exercise. Everyone just did everything then in fitness. So it was like bands and burpees and shit. So, but they had no clue why they were doing what they were doing, you know. So I saw that not by someone who was training me or any of my mentors, but I saw it in the fitness world as kind of just like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And I couldn't really wrap my head around it. Yeah. And then, you know, with the advent of CrossFit, I was doing it myself personally. So I was like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to get into this and go 100%. And then once I start doing it, now I started to recognize that those people who were doing it didn't know why they were doing why they were doing it, what they were doing. And so that's where I think I've helped out a little bit within functional fitness or the intensity of it is to add some principles to that why of, you know, fast Olympic lift movements and where it fits into training and what the dose response is and the effect and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, it's very much needed out there. That's for sure. Yeah. But I know you said before that the client always dictates what you're trying to do. Yeah. How did you arrive at that approach of individualized, personalized training for everybody?
1: Yeah, uh, well, it's coming out of academia and having these two big certifications on my back, you know, of a PFLC and a CSCS, and which were regarded at the time in the late in the late 90s of like, so I had Czech internship, polyquin internship, CSCS and PFLC. So professional fitness and lifestyle consultant in Canada, and a CSCS at the time in the States, plus working with those two guys, I was like, from the words I'm behind my name, I was like top dog, right? <laughs> So then I'd get a job anywhere and work with anyone and charge whatever I wanted. So then I got out there and took all this information from academia and those practices, those certifications, started working with people recognizing none of that shit works in real life. You know, well, I'll be right. There was principles in there, but there's a lot of shit in there that didn't coincide with what I was like practicing. So I'd have someone in front of me is like, oh, this is what we assess. This is your program. This is what you need to do. Then as you watch those trends over time, It was just like, you know, that's not the way it was working. And then I I quickly, you know, see this underground movement of functional fitness and also these personal trainers, as example, who are in these global gyms, just getting really great results as well as powerlifting coaches and track coaches. And I was like, that's none of the shit that I'm doing. That's principles of why they're making people better as to what I'm offering in fitness. So what were those people doing and what they were doing? They were meeting them where they're at. That means figuring out where their starting point is and then saying, how do you go forward from that position and a starting point. And so that's when I start recognizing that, you know, you gotta figure out exactly where that person is on that continuum of fitness and say, this is where you are and this is where we need to go. And this is how we get there to that point. And then we'll talk about what this might look like, but all the shit that goes into getting you from here to here starts right here.
2: And so all of that starts with the assessment of the individual, whether they're 80 years old or 15 years old.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that should be some well should imperatively I'll say you should do some kind of physical testing and some kind of behavioral testing uh, to kind of complement the two, to know where people are coming from, how they enjoy or not enjoy the coaching process, what's their perspective on fitness, what their priorities are in their life, how they currently move, what are you going to offer in your gym as your movements? And what is that assessment going to look like? So if you can only offer kettlebells in your gym, which is fine, then you should probably have some assessments that are going to put people into what you're doing in the gym in order to ensure you can do correct movements and work around that. So, yeah, it's important.
2: James, a lot of our listeners are CrossFitters, triathletes, obstacle course racers, runners, you know, that's okay. that sort of line of sport. And so mm-hmm. I really want to dive into some of the energy systems training and mm-hmm. some of those methodologies and kind of how they're applied to an individual in sport and out of sport and kind of just what what is the energy system training model? There isn't one. <laughs> If Calm there was one, well, there'd
1: be a book and we'd all have it read, we'd be like, oh, this is just what you That's do with This
2: the
1: way is the way to do it. it. <laughs> yeah, man. No, there's, well, there's, you got to think of it as a biological, you got to think of it as biology. So any extra work that a human wants to do is a slight stress response to that human. So it's either willfully done or it has to be done from an extraneous situation. So holy shit, my house is on fire. There's different things that happen to that. Whereas I'm like, I'm going to start a fire and then try to drop the fire or put it out, that's a total different stress response. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So you got to understand those basic biological stress adaptation principles in order to recognize, like, what is energy system training? What is conditioning? Second thing you got to understand is who the human is. So if the human doesn't have a quote unquote well developed nervous system for physical activity, then they don't have a lot of, let's call it, bits and pieces to work with in order to create work. So if someone, is not powerful enough or can't actually express all the motor units and make everything work effectively very intensely, then they actually can't do some aspects of energy system training. Why? Because their survival mechanism is only based upon their current relative strength and how well they use oxygen, right? But look at you two guys, I can guarantee you, you could get trashed of a minute of assault bike training really hard. Why can you? Because if I asked you to do it really hard such that it didn't sustain beyond a minute, you should probably take 10 minutes before you can repeat that amount of work. But why do you feel trashed after the minute? Because your CNS has developed enough in order to do the amount of work for the minute. You take a beginner, a young kid, an old lady. You ask them to go all out for a minute. And I mean really all out. They will recover in 45 seconds and do the exact same piece of work the next minute. So you see that? You guys did what we call lactic endurance training. And the old lady did aerobic training. See that? So it's not energy system training. It's just whatever the human can do relative to the stress that's imposed upon them and what they have to work with internally uh, for the work that's being done. And then when it gets into the sports you had mentioned, that gets quite complicated for multiple reasons.
0: Gosh, well, that's really kind of you to say, for one, you know, that we could do <laughs> that. So how do we test components of that? Though, What are some good measures and tests for that?
1: Yeah, well... There isn't one, but I can give you, maybe your listeners, some ideas to how to figure out where they sit in that is to do a repetitive to, first of all, if you're, if there's geeks out there, who love the science aspect, do lots of research in repetitive sprint intervals. So repeated stress intervals, they were done for multiple different reasons, but the research and the data behind it is very powerful information in terms of who you're dealing with for the work that's being done. So we do a test on a rower that's 30 seconds all out and you rest 30 seconds, and you have to do four repeats of that. So really, there's thre- three rest periods in between the four doses of 30 seconds. So of course, there's a lot of things you have to be capable of in order to create that power. Uh, you have to be technically prowess on the rower, of course. Um, and we select and self-select specific individuals to do it, but you can just imagine that asking people to put out as much power as possible for 30 seconds there's no way in hell a shit ton of people are going to recover fast enough to do the next subsequent 3.30 seconds pieces. So what you're going to see is a decrement in work that's done over a period of time. In science, because I don't know who I'm talking to or the listeners, when anyone who's fresh does a piece of work that's really hard for 30 seconds, you almost drop a major part of the one energy system almost tremendously. So the CPATP system is going to have a really hard time recovering fast enough to put out the same amount of requisite power for the next set. So what you should see in a perfect curve for repetitive stress intervals is really a lot amount of power, a decrement, right, a drop of power, and then slightly less drops in power for the next curve, right? So for four really stressful events, you could assess that like we have done in thousands of people and see how their aerobic system works in coordination with their anaerobic system so if you have someone who like let's just assume you guys um you know i'm really making you guys able to be these massively powerful 30 to one so to one minute, inter- inter- well, yeah. well, Our listeners know better than that right? so, <laughs> so like you know with you guys be able to do <laughs> the 30 seconds of work that you guys would put out let's just say if you're a five foot uh, 11 male 195 pounds you know we have to gather a shit ton of data that says what's a maximum based upon body weight and height for true power score that that person could put out. And let's just say one of you guys put out 198. Okay. And um, the other person put out 197. And then the next set, the person who put out 198 did 170 meters. That's the meters that scored for the 30 seconds of rowing. Okay. Can you visualize that?
2: Right.
1: Now the second person put out 182 meters. You see the difference in decrement from the front end and the back end? So now already with only two scores, we could see that one person scored absolutely just as powerful as the mm. other person. But as in terms of recovering from that anaerobic potential, one guy sucks and one guy's not bad. Mm. You seeing that? Yeah, right. So if you add another interval and another interval to that, now we start looking at the glycolics glycolysis system how well they recover when they get into that fatigue state, what the aerobic system strength is like to help people recover from it. So if there's one way to figure out where you sit in a broad stroke, you got to figure out not how powerful you are, but how aerobic you are to help you recover from your power.
2: So
0: you can really figure out all those just within that one test?
1: Well, it does not... I'm always careful to use the word figure out because everyone wants an answer to the question of energy system, but it gives you massive insight if you know what you're looking for and it's prescribed correctly.
2: So it can be kind of a starting point of, look, I'm producing a lot of power, but my aerobic capacity is shit, you know? Yeah. And we know that
1: based upon the data of how all those four scores work together, we've created a, a perfect logarithm of percentages of total uh, median score, uh, top and lowest score percentage, and the decrement percentages between each of them. Just because then it's just plug and play of numbers to say, oh, you know, based upon your height and body weight and training age, you know, you should score here, and this is what your scores look like, and this is why. Because then you'll get the person. Let uh, just give you an example. You'll get another male who is like we had described, who scores 188 meters in the first set, and they score 187, 188, and 187. So across the board. What is that telling you? That they they're low in their anaerobic potential but they're massive in their aerobic potential, right? Because we asked them to go all out every set, right? From what they said, they're like, "I want all out every set, but they actually can't get tired." The reason why they can't get tired is because they can't be aer- anaerobic. So, what does that person need? They would need proper strength training and great power development. They don't need any aerobic conditioning.
2: What are some of the better
1: scores you've seen on that test? Well, the best score is going to be the one that's the highest absolute power relatively to that person that we're describing. We're talking about 142-pound female CrossFitter compared to a 215-pound powerlifting male. Those are two different people. So your highest maximum you can get in that first score and then small decrements in the next three scores. Mm. So for it. So it's, it's actually not total meters that we're looking for. I don't give a shit how you compare to someone else. I'm yeah. concerned about power output, right? And so a perfect score, to give you numbers, would be like 195, 186, 180, 175.
0: That's great to know. Yeah, you're going to send us some of these tests so we can knock <laughs> them out in our listeners we'll too. we let report. Yes. We'll see yeah. where we're
2: at.
1: Hold down for that. You've got uh, to preempt it.
2: <laughs> now, how often do you recommend retesting something like that?
1: Yeah, that's the great thing about that kind of test is I wanted to pick a test or find a test that can be tested frequently. Um, So something like that is not going to trash people. If people are afraid of doing the test, that just tells me right away, they're too powerful. True. Right. If you're scared to death to do the test, you're like, oh shit. Well, I mean, we can do the test, but probably (laughs) sensing that your power output is up high. And ironically, if it's a competitive event, like you had talked about possibly for, well, triathletes, I'm not sure if they'd have the technique, maybe obstacle course racers, because they do some uh, great conditioning away from the sport specificity and definitely crossfitters they would have the row technique ability to be able to do the test frequently to kind of just get checks and balances on how things are working. Sure. So to give you an example for a crossfitter, you know, in an off season, we want high power and okay aerobic ability. But prior to the opens, we want probably the same or less power output, but we want great scores for the next three sets.
0: Are there any other relative benchmarks that you look for in your athletes, say like a, you know, double body weight back squat or a certain mile and a half, uh, run time, et cetera, anything like that at certain points in their training?
1: Well, the, if you're talking about CrossFit as a sport and fitness, then, yeah, we use a lot of uh, stuff that I use within my coaching education program and structural balance because if people are going to be participating in a sport, it's obvious you know, what data is out there that they need to have for basic strength levels. So you can go and search that data from – A million data points that can be pulled publicly off CrossFit.com or their open leaderboard. And so it's very well known what those scores are that people need to have in certain areas. There's also certain levels of weight that people have to move because that's actually prescribed in the open workouts. There's your answer for those other standard scores. But we're more concerned about structural balance of how one lift compares to another, as well as how well they do sub maximally of that maximal lift. So I see a lot more in. Submaximal fatigue testing than I do in maximal fatigue testing of uh, absolute strength or uh, strength speed scenarios. That would be like a snatch max and then take 77% of, the, of that snatch max and do 25 reps for time. And then that gives us an idea as to how well someone works within that quasi-sport specific environment, how well their battery is at a sub-max load on a consistent time for time basis.
0: Are you looking at anything else there, like their form, where that breaks down mobility well, that, issues, et cetera? Well,
1: like you know, in motor control, I mean, that just speaks volumes to the resilience of the individual. Right. So we don't score that because it's an objective measure. Okay, to score that'd be a different one because I really don't give a shit if they beat people and they're shitty with their form. To be completely honest, am I going to fix it? Yeah, I'm going to fix it. Going to make them more efficient. But if someone's inefficient with movement and has a high absolute score. That just screams high resilience. That's an anti fragile person. But if you have someone with really tight form and a shitty absolute score, then maybe that person needs to let their hair down a little bit and loosen up because they're too tight with their form. It's pulling away for capacity. So I just like the data. What's your max? What's your score? And then what's the issue that we got to work on? If someone has a shit 25 reps due to lack of efficiency, then by all means, we're just improving the actual snatch itself. And they will get better in the capacity score because they're spitting off less energy.
2: Okay. Is there a kind of a typical training cycle window that you adhere to? You know, is it kind of a six-week cycle, three-month cycle? Will you program? How far out will you program for a specific training period?
1: It's all individualized. So you got to look at, and it goes back to that individualized piece of where the person's starting. So you got to recognize where this person sits in their uh, resilience and their ability to adapt based upon their training age. Because if you have someone, like to answer your point, if if someone came in front of me, their training age is like two years, they just learned to snatch and clean and jerk, they know all the slow movements, they got good capacity, and they've been improving on everything they've been doing for the past six months, then I'm going to see shit improving every four weeks. So I'm going to be varying and having a high amount of frequency and a whole bunch of fitness characteristics. Why? Because everything's going to shift towards increasing on the right. Whereas if I get someone who's trained seven years, mechanically sucks at the snatch and clean jerk, is absolutely strong and is quasi okay at capacity, then you have to recognize that fitness characteristics for them are not going to change in four weeks. So I'm going to have to pull away in some areas and then push in other areas. And some areas which we see a big problem within CrossFit as an example that anyone in other sports could take as an example – is a major missing link of the reps are not being put in, in muscle endurance and absolute strength. But they expect to just jump into a high dynamic sport and just like crush it for years. Yet they get to this year and a half, you know, stable point, And then they start getting injured. Now they got a foam roll more. Now they need more supplements. Now they need replacement therapy, yada, yada, yada. And it's just because they didn't put the time in that we could have assessed from them right away.
2: To lay that groundwork.
1: Yeah. yeah. So to, get, to answer your question, there's no one thing that looks like this in this phase. Someone may come with us and they have to work on upper body, absolute strength and muscle endurance the whole season while holding everything else in place the whole time and not focusing on anything else. So largely, largely depend upon the person we're dealing with.
2: Yeah. And the main reason I asked is just for the listeners out there. Cause I think so many people, even that may just not be familiar with CrossFit or individualized training, you know, Mm -hmm. they're so accustomed to the four week training cycle periodization, you know, I'm going to do a strength phase and I'm going to do an endurance phase or, you know, and so Mm -hmm. I think that kind of altering that paradigm for them and saying, Hey, you know, how can I find out at home in my garage gym, in my global gym, my weaknesses, and then adapt my training accordingly? You know, maybe Mm -hmm. they don't have a personal trainer and they're not going to get one, but how can they take those tools kind of apply it to their daily routine. Well, sport
1: and fitness is different. If you're doing it for sport, you obviously have a certain event you got to prepare for. And so if you're doing it for sport, then you pay the price of admission and you just got to do the shit. But what would answer the question for everyone though is to measure, you know? So I don't care if you're a human in a garage and you don't have a coach, you can still measure your shit. So pick a measurement that you determine is your base measure for physical fitness. You know, I like a couple of specific ones that are super simple for people who participate in lots of fitness. Well, I have lots of them, but a jerk single off blocks, you know, done every seven to 10 days, um, a 2k row every couple of weeks. Those are two super simple measures of fitness that people could do. And you can do whatever you want inside of the training program and take, take a look at those two simple measures over a period of time to indicate if people are having progression within their fitness. So whatever they want to choose, I think they just need to keep measuring things. And I think that's where the missing link is and people getting so inundated and like, what's the plan? What's the plan? Well, who gives a shit what the plan is if you're not getting better, or you're not even making an attempt to move towards something. If people are doing it for fitness, back to your point of like, what plan should they choose? The question you should ask every workout, every movement, after every workout, how is this benefiting me for fitness forever? So when people ask that question, they'll quickly align to the correct shit they're supposed to be doing for the program, as opposed to looking for something new next month in the newest magazine. They'll be like, wait now. This is not going to help me at 92 years of age climb a mountain. Fuck that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, that's great. And our listeners well, have heard us say many times, you know, what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed. So that's great advice. Super. We touched a bit on
0: fatigue earlier, but kind of on the back of what you were just saying there, say, I'm not an athlete. I'm just on the, you know, the look good naked program, right? Mm-hmm. How often should I, I be going to fatigue?
1: Uh, if you're trying to look good naked, fatigue can happen in a CP sense in an aerobic sense, quite frequently. Okay. If you're doing it to look good naked, strict uh, strength training, fatigue, you're, you're actually going to get to a point where your body either cannot do it or you can. So unless it's, we're talking, of course, all things being able not shit movement, right? But if you want to do strength training and aerobic training, and you want to do that to fatigue, there's going to be a volume point that you can only do so much mechanically or aerobically, where your body's just like, I can't do anymore. But it's that middle zone shit where you go to fatigue too often. That's what pushes the other characteristics down the shitter. So then you start getting weaker, losing motor coordination, start burning sugars for fuel. Your mm-hmm. body can't understand how to be aerobic or how to sustain, can't recover from activity, yada, 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 yada. So just put it into three buckets. You want to go fatigue lots weight training? I don't give a shit. As long as you don't hurt yourself, just be smart. If you want to go to fatigue lots aerobically, cool. Cool. You know what's going to happen? You can only do so much. You want to go for a bike ride for three hours, you can only handle an hour. Well, you stupid dick, you can only handle an hour. That's the only (laughs) only volume you put in. But people get, you know, really caught up in um, when you say look good naked. Mm -hmm. There's so much behavioral shit inside that that, I mean, it's it's like a whole other podcast. (laughs) But when it comes down to mechanics of training, it doesn't, it's okay. I mean, you're just going to get to a litmus point. Obviously, you have a disease or a sickness if you're in the gym for three hours looking to fatigue everything. That's (laughs) outside of this conversation, right? But don't be afraid of going to fatigue. If I could, you know, anything that I could give to people, you're not going to make any gains, you know, quote unquote, in the CP system. If you're not doing some kind of maximal voluntary contraction every workout, that doesn't mean a 1RM. That just means a really challenging repetition right? That could be the ninth repetition of something. That could be the 15th of another. That could be a double, a tough double, but you got to do some kind of maximal voluntary contraction. So great for the nervous system. So good for anabolism. It's so good for understanding, you know, your abilities. And then for the aerobic system, I'd suggest let volume or sorry. Yeah. Let volume be your litmus. Mm -hmm. If you do 20 minutes and it's one minute on, one minute off for 20 minutes, you're like, I'm feeling fantastic. Then that your body's just saying, well, you can do more aerobic work. Continue to do it if you want to.
2: Mm-hmm. So James, specifically for your athletes or for anyone training athletes for sport, I'm interested. What kind of sport? Just sport in general. So this is more of a fatigue question. Okay. So whether that's assessment during training or during competition, I'm interested how you utilize these different levels of fatigue when trying to gain a you know, deeper understanding of the individual.
1: Yeah, well, the, that's why I quickly asked you a question about sport. The sport largely dictates what we need to prepare that person for. So it's hard to bring into context what we need to do to test unless I have an idea of the sport. Sport is way too broad. You know, mixed martial arts versus soccer versus ice hockey versus alpine skiing versus badminton. You know, what are the tests and what are the fatigue mechanisms I need for that? You know, it's so specific. So I can just give you, without just letting it, every question be like, well, it depends. Um,
2: Let's throw out um, triathletes.
1: Okay. So repeat the question then with triathletes as context.
2: Yeah. So if you're training a triathlete, you know, whether that's initial assessment or reassessment, Mm -hmm. training Mm -hmm. or competition, how do you utilize these different levels of fatigue to gain a deeper understanding of that individual?
1: Yes. So for triathlon, um, you're really looking at physics. So you want to look at body weight and fuel efficiency. So that means how much weight do they need to actually have to use uh, fuel appropriately for the muscle that they're working with. So I always strictly go to physics when we talk about cyclical endurance athletics. Uh, Reason being is that the one who's going to produce the best amount of sustainable power long-term with the lowest body weight is the person that eventually wins and has the most efficiency overall, better cooling, blah, blah, blah. So go that route first. So what are you going to assess? Well, you want to assess, you know, phase angle or bioelectrical impedance, body composition, whatever you want to test that, and to keep looking at that score over and over. Secondly, you want to assess exactly where they get fatigued in all the three disciplines plus the three disciplines all together. And then that is a little more complicated, but for listeners out there who are like maybe on their own, just like, I just want to do a triathlon. You want to figure out what your limiters are per event by itself. Some people's limiters in swimming may be technique, maybe looking up out of the water when they're in know maybe anxiety, whatever the case may be. You know, for cycling, it may be positioning, right? They may have their freaking, you know, feet uh, positioned incorrectly or the angle may be like a half inch off and it's fucking up everything. It also may be lower body uh, muscle endurance that's a limiter. So when they do flat for 80K or 70.3 race, they're fine. When they go in another location on the west coast, then they're all fucked up. Why? Because it had like three hills in it. So And then you want to look at what running limitations there are based upon that. And then look at those limiters in the presence of the sport. Because if you're just looking at, you know, an FMS test or one of my CCP assessments, or you're putting them through structural balance and all this other shit, what the fuck does that have to do with the limitations that are provide to the specifics for their sport? The limitations for their sport are mainly metabolic in a cyclical endeavor um, that you're probably not going to pick up with these little tiny things that you're going to find in an assessment for that. So how do you get them into fatigue? You have to put them into fatigue in the pool, on the bike, and running all by itself, right? And you and I, were offline. We can come up with fancy ways of doing that. You got to figure out, if you're the listener at home, what are your limiters in each of those areas? Because if your limiter, for example, is lower body muscle endurance for cycling, then why are you fucking spending all your time just doing long distance cycling? You know, you need to work on SpO2 measures and how to, you know, basically get, Low O2 in your legs and learning how to deal with it more efficiently. You're not going to do that by, you know, taking 150 miles a week, doing it at a really slow pace. You got to do some specific training that challenges that limitation itself.
0: How much transferability is there between those modalities in, say, triathlon, the swim, bike, and run? When I'm swimming, am I only getting better at swimming, or is that helping my running and cycling at all?
1: Well, you have the way I like to say, you have one brain and multiple things happening. So to say that we don't have transferability for metabolic purposes is a very lower order human way of thinking, you know? So, you know, and it, it just, you know, it goes to show and we just, you guys know that too. I mean, you've probably seen like wrestlers, you know, who uh, get into CrossFit or fitness and they're just retarded capacity. Right. Right. Are we wrestling? No, we're not wrestling. But to say that those specific things don't carry over to this systemic response of the mitochondria being really effective you know, things we don't recognize, being held at the shoulder and having no blood flow in your arms and then learning how to use these muscles with no blood flow, that's pretty powerful shit, right? So take the pool, for example. Great side of the pool is that, you know, it's basically like a exercise for your lungs in a non-eccentric environment, no gravity. You're basically just doing all concentric muscle endurance activity, right, with balanced breathing. Just imagine if you got really good at that. That's like a treadmill for your lungs and a treadmill for your muscle or your density at the muscle level with low O2, right? You obviously have low O2 levels uh, while you swim. Why? Because you can't just like, <laughs> you can't just breathe like this, right? It's got to be controlled breathing, right? Yeah. And so in order to control that breath, we got to be able to send O2 efficiently to the muscles when they're working a lot harder than they're asking for it. So I think there's lots of transferability over and because you picked on a sport triathlon, I did that lots. And I was in Calgary for so many years where I had to deal with people with shitty weather who had to prepare indoors really. And so we used to used to do so much call it mixed modal training with swimming and biking to try to get their capacity up to the highest amount possible because we couldn't use running as a way of improving capacity. Um and we got none of those eccentric steps, right? Which happens in running.
2: Didn't know. So kind of on that topic of the fatigue. How about overcoming some of the fatigue? What are some of your favorite recovery tools or techniques for training?
1: Yeah, well, you know, in speaking of overreaching versus overtraining, so I would assume a fatigue would mean that, you know, people can't train anymore. You actually have to, whatever time off means for you, take a small amount of time off, whether it be two or three days, and then train again for an entire cycle, which would be seven or 10 days or two weeks. That's the only way to determine if you actually are having an issue with fatigue. Otherwise, some people are like, oh, I'm tired. And that could be perceived as fatigue, but also really it's just an overreaching state. So all you need is like a good carb load and a few good movies, basically, for a day (laughs) or two, and you're ready to rock and roll again, and you just got to change up the training plan. So first thing is you got to actually, you know, measure it as true fatigue, and the way you measure true fatigue is that you start to go back up in training again, and you don't feel like you can put out the same amount of work that you just finished with. So at that point in time, um, I would investigate some deeper methods of uh, heart rate variability or um, a Dutch test, adrenal stress index panel. Um, I do diagnostics. Um, I don't try to like rewrite the program by, you know, foam rolling more and adding yoga and like eating more supplements and taking drugs. And that's not my operation. That's not how I do it. I do it through diagnostics. So if people feel like they're fatigued, they're fucked up, and they're like, I just can't go back, I can't do it, then I'm like, well, let's get measured because I want to see under the hood if that actually is what's going on or if it's behavioral or something else. Or mechanic or something like that.
0: James, I want to ask, so say we have two athletes of the same structure, the same strength. Mm-hmm. What allows that one athlete to endure fatigue more effectively than the other?
1: Perception. That's it. The person with the highest level of resilience or someone who's more anti-fragile that responds well in, a, in some chaotic environment, which would be, remember that burning building stress response situation? are the ones that have the lowest perception. Is when that per- trainable? Perceive really high, um, you're very sensitive. That doesn't mean sensitive, like, emotionally sensitive. It means <laughs> you're super sensitive. But if you're super sensitive and your feelers are out, uh, those people generally are, I would call them less fit than those people who have a really low perception where they're not really connecting uh, as to what's going to happen. They're just doing it.
0: Do you have any techniques for improving someone's resiliency?
1: Yeah, training. That's the only thing I can work with. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's lots of people proposing benefits of, you know, fancy shit. I won't name any stuff that's out there, but for legal purposes, but I'm just biased to the training. I never saw anyone who got better in a sport that didn't put time and effort and miles in. So training can fix a whole lot of shit, emotional things, behavioral stuff. uh, It can toughen people up, increase robustness, you know, change up people's perspective on, you know, recovery. Yeah. Understanding the system
2: is, it with training. is some of that resiliency in any way linked to genetics or is it kind of, I mean, I assume it's a holistic approach. It's their upbringing, who yeah. their parents were, their environment. Yeah. I mean, we had a guy at our CrossFit gym that he was also in Ranger Academy and guy was just started CrossFit a couple months prior to the open last year, but was mm-hmm. a monster. And was still understanding the movement, still getting him down, but was fit as could be, you know, coming in for, for yep. that period of time. And and he was doing a workout. I believe it was a thrusty, thruster burpee workout last year. And someone asked him what he was thinking during that workout. And he said, I just kept going. He said, uh, you know, worst case scenario, I'm thinking that, man, I could be jumping on an IED right now. And, I mean, that's what's going through his mind. Mm-hmm. And he's just crushing this workout where everybody's looking at him like, how are you doing this, mm-hmm. you know? Clearly, that's just his makeup. But how much is, is,
1: but also experiences.
2: Sure. How much is tied into genetics itself? I mean, is that like Jake asked? You know, part of it can be trained, but is part of it just inherent to the individual?
1: Yeah. If I knew the answer to that one, buddy, I'd have uh, (laughs) I'd have a booklet out on it. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think that's why we're all here. You know, as humans, is trying to figure out what makes that up. The whole nature nurture. Thing will forever go on. If I was to add some things to it, it doesn't come without investigating that. So we have partnerships with a company called DNA fit that uh, looks into those kind of things. We ob- also, if not obvious, we're very big fans of behavior change. And we coach coaches on that in my education on consulting and behavioral practices. So we're very big on, you know, let's call it, we call it getting the inventory, getting like the whole story of the person and I would say that there's no percentages of more or less, but you got to look at the full package. You know, what someone comes to you with the story, but to say that someone who doesn't come with a great story, if you think you're just going to train them entirely to fix that resilience, you're sorely mistaken. So you got to basically challenge them emotionally and you also have to support them emotionally. So no one's going to grow no matter where they sit if they're not challenged and supported at the same time. If people are over-challenged, there's eventually going to come a, you know, a kicker to it. People are over-supported, then there's going to come a kick to that too. So I don't have an answer to your question. I don't know if there is one. It's an admirable question, and we'll just leave it at that. that We don't (laughs) know.
2: No, that's good. It does kind of lead me to my...
1: But I I control training, so I'm biased to the training. I control training.
2: That kind of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, with all the technology and testing we have available today, is it possible in any realm, to out-train your genetic potential?
1: Well, that's actually impossible under the definition of potential. Right. Uh, I think what you're t- I'm not sure if you're talking about, like, limit strength, which is basically a, a super-conscious level of ability that we don't know we have unless it's we're going to survive, like, unless there's a survival mechanism. So, you know, the falling off a rock and fucking just catching on with one arm. Like you'd never be able to do that or your tendons would not be able to, but you're able to do it. Why? Cause you're going to fucking die. Yeah. Or running away from a gun. If you've never been shot at before, which thank God I've never have been, but I'm <laughs> empathetic to those who have, you know, got actually dampened to that kind of idea. If you can imagine that it's like, Oh, Oh, that he's shooting from over there. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a total different, you know, uh, To look at. So if you're talking about that, um, I think some of the people you had discussed, as well as pugilists, so special forces, pugilists, you know, those are going to be like choked out and killed, let's say. That's possibly not going to be saved. So what would that be? That'd just be like street fighters, you know, someone's gonna kill you. That's the (laughs) I don't mean to sound like a dickhead on this, but that's the ultimate challenge in fitness, really, is like, are you gonna fight for your survival? Um, I think. Yes, at that point in time long winded answer to your question, you can go above your genetic potential. why? Because you're going to die if you don't, so there is a limit, but you can't willfully do that. Yeah. so can you train it? I'd argue you cannot train it. Can it possibly happen? Yes, but I hope it doesn't happen to us too often.
0: I hope yeah. not. That's now, those you- stories you hear about moms picking up you know cars off of yeah. their kids, et cetera,
2: stuff like that, yep. yeah, yep, so you can target like through gene expression or um, Mm non-expression, for lack of a better term, kind of enhance that individual's abilities just by having a great look at what's going on under the hood, right? Yep, yes, definitely.
1: DNA Fit is the company. I'd highly suggest you you look into that. Um, There's gonna be a lot more done on it over time. Athletagen is another company that's doing it Mm -hmm. where you can take your own 23andMe information and just kind of get some idea on it. What these companies need to do though to grow tremendously is to be able to educate the person on the user end exactly what to do with this information. And right now it's very, very confusing because it's so in-depth, man. It's just ridiculously in-depth. I read an entire book this summer called The Gene, just try to understand it some more the history behind it. And I'm nowhere. I'm like <laughs> point two in the story of a hundred year gene story. Yeah. And I point point two by reading this 400 page book.
2: I saw that book actually last weekend at Barnes & Noble. It was in the highly recommended section.
1: Yeah, I'll get it for you. <laughs> because I can't pronounce the name. There That's the go. one.
2: Oh, wow. Sidhartha? Yep. Good job. Uh, don't ask me to do the last name.
1: Nope. <laughs> nope. And uh, I'm like, and it just makes you recognize, like, wow, some deep.
2: Have you seen some pretty cool transformations by using some of that information, though, at OPEX?
1: Yes, thus far. Back to your point on the look good naked one, for fitness. And for possibly tweaking the program in sport development, I can see a lot of positive things coming from knowing what's underneath the hood. When it comes to like sickness, disease, CrossFit, I think it just gets a little weird because there's so much chaos that goes on inside of that. There's so many things you need to get fixed in order to align up what is correct anyways, that it's just uh, it is what it is.
0: Yeah. That's something else I wanted to ask. I mean, you see these top level CrossFit athletes, And they look like gladiators out there, you know, Mm -hmm. and people think like, wow, I mean, they look super healthy. They look extremely fit. They're performing at levels that we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. But how healthy are they under the hood?
1: Not very, but I mean, you you can't be healthy to perform at the highest level of physical potential. Um, If you want to be, quote unquote, the fittest CrossFitter in the world, you cannot be, you know, waking up every morning and just like birds chirping and like, (laughs) oh, I can just drop into a squat and do a bunch of burpees right away that's that's total bullshit if people are trying to sell that is what it's like it's a sport it's not any different besides the mechanics in the year and the involvement like mma you don't see guys like walking around just like flowing out you know doing the M- or <laughs> mma 12 months a year that's not the way it works so i can tell you too uh, so i don't sound like a hater i've studied a lot of them i was one of those people they are let's just say they're not no, health is not it. In my spectrum of where it sits in it, vitality is over here, uh, sickness is right here, elite fitness is right next to it, and death is over here. Yeah. So sickness and elite fitness are neighbors, right It's You're it potentially taking like years off you your can. life. It doesn't, it doesn't correlate to uh, you living long and prospering. That's a really that's a story that should have been told slightly differently.
2: How big of a sacrifice, like you said, you've been there. How big of a sacrifice is it for the long term in living for a while on the other end of that bell curve? Well,
1: time will tell. Time will tell. But I mean, you guys know there's a sweet spot for exercise. If we're talking there's a sweet spot for exercise in which that sweet spot will enable you to like use fuels appropriately, get out of bed, do your shit and live long and prosper. Then, you know, I did nothing next to that sweet spot for like 15 years straight. So what is that doing for me? Well, only time will tell, but I can guarantee you I'm gonna have some metabolic issues at sixty-five, maybe by fifty-five. Cause I know I had shit happen to me in two thousand nine that I was like, There's no way this can be fixed. You know, you just can't. And that's from someone who was not the highest resilient, not the most talented, but just tried to work hard to be as good as what you know I thought I was supposed to be. And um, you can only burn it so often, you know.
2: Yeah. So kind of on online with that CrossFit discussion. And just how much the whole sport has pushed the envelope, I think, of what people thought was capable. It's kind of a chicken and the egg question, but did CrossFit in the games, you know, push the envelope so much with the strength aspect and the capacity that the athletes were almost forced to adapt in their training to then reach that level? Or were the athletes achieving so much in their own training that CrossFit we have to continue to set the bar higher and higher?
1: Yeah, well, I was going to answer the question, yes, but then when you finish, it's like, well, it's complementary of both because I think there's a story that they all know what are kind of expectations. And I think CrossFit, you know, otherwise, you know, it'd be like if they were just their own thing in Barbados and they never had any connection to any athletes, they just like showed up in Wisconsin and was like, here's the tests. I don't think you'd have the same kind of collective organization as you do. So that head group is really tight with all the, not really tight, but they're knowledgeable of all the top athletes and what they're capable of and what people are doing. And they're staying on top of that. So I think there's a halfway of this is where we want to go in terms of the sport and the development of it, what we want to achieve with, uh, you know, maybe some higher order ideas, what that could look like, but they're also very connected to the athletes and what they're capable of. And just finding that little challenge each time as to what uh, you want to do, you know?
0: Yeah. I think it's kind of funny. All these top level athletes, they have a certain body type, you know, or they start to look mm-hmm. similar after years and years of this training. Yeah, and we've because all...
1: the, the sport requires it. You mm-hmm. know, the sport requires it. You can see the females growing bigger traps and bigger scapulas, right? Why? Because of the volume is a masculine prescription. The training is a masculine prescription, right? It doesn't say, oh, females have generally this amount of less upper body lean mass and strength. It's just like, no, we're just going to drop the reps by 70%. That makes no sense, right? <laughs> So it's not a gender thing or right or wrong thing, but you know what's gonna happen? Females are adapting based upon that. You're starting to see it. For those who don't like to talk about it, you just haven't been in the game long enough. So just give it a little bit of time um, and open your eyes to it. But you're seeing that what happens in all sports, a morph of like who's the most appropriate at the game's level. But don't forget what you're seeing happen at the games is not the games, it's the regionals, right? Right. The regional dictate who goes to the games. So what the workouts are at the regional level. Is what people in an off season are preparing for, and that's what you're going to look like if you want to get good at the regionals. Which is a 185 to 190 pound male, five foot ten, and a five foot six, 145 pound female with a gymnastics or bodybuilding background. And if you were in the pool for a lot of years, it certainly helped as well.
0: Now is that to say that say average Joe jumps in with these people and begins to train or attempt, you know, to train with them on a daily basis and model their training? Will they eventually yeah. begin to look like them as well?
1: Uh, not necessarily, no. Okay. Yeah, it takes time. I'd have to know what that person looks
0: like. Right, but, right. Yeah, yeah there's too many other factors it. at play.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, they wouldn't be able to do their training. Exactly. You can't scale any of that that they're doing. And then secondly, uh, yeah, it would take time based upon who the person is, what they wanted to do.
2: Sure. How do you feel that, because, I mean, we love your individualized approach. You know, we firmly believe in that. It should certainly be tailored to the individual how do you feel like this pushing of the envelope on a global level has kind of trickled down and had an impact? What kind of impact has it had on the everyday CrossFitter gym-goer?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure of the question, but I know where to go with where my line of thinking was. You know, it, it, Individualization and training you know, is just a belief that I have that I feel very passionate about because I think each person is unique. And if there's a coach that understands that person effectively, Then there's a value in trade right there. It's a fair trade value. The coach gets to investigate and learn from the human and give and be creative, which is a fair trade in what they get out of the whole relationship. And the client gets direction based upon some of the shit they can't even see in which how they're supposed to be guided for fitness. So it's an equal fair trade. So the whole movement of you started the question with like, you know, going to these higher levels, um, I think it's reflective of society and technology you know, so we're so more connected biotech and the measurement of what we're doing is just ridiculously high, you know, take Fitbit as a really simple example of that, that people are interested in what makes me up as a unique snowflake. Therefore, there's going to be more prescriptions over time of that individualized approach. Why? Because people are going to be the consumers going to be smart enough over time to be like, yeah, that shit, I don't do well with that.
0: What are some of the biggest glaring holes that you see not just in cross specifically but in gyms in general in america geez glaring holes and repeated you know crimes that you see being committed by coaches
1: oh yeah no okay um yeah not necessarily just by coaches but in the culture in general everyone thinks they're going to get shit in two weeks
0: yeah that's america for you
1: yeah it's not yeah it could be culture it could be generation it could be i don't care what it is but i can tell you everyone thinks that you know shit just comes in six weeks Mm -hmm. but Who's to blame for that? We are as a culture, right? You get shit on Google, you know, Instagram and Facebook makes it look like everyone's life is like a hundred percent on all the time. You know, these people, all these people, the only ones you see are improving and getting PRs, you know, so, you know, that's our fault.
2: Yeah. Do you feel like some of that is just a lack of proper education through the school system and even outside the school system? I know Dr. Andy Galpin's kind of a big advocate I mean, of some that's of that.
1: A deep and... one. That's a deep one, man. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. uh, I I think a lot of questions are answered in biology. And I just think, you know, I'm biased. Of course, I have a minor in biology, but I fucking love science. And uh, a lot of that stuff is answered in the human potential and what we're capable of and, you know, why we get pubic hair at a certain time in our life and why our our hormones change at a certain time in our life and when we could be getting pregnant and why we can't get pregnant and what happens at 15, what happens at seven like that shit's been built in stone for a long period of time, you know, as humans. Um and if we don't just abide by those principles, which is right in front of us, I think it's kind of a kind of sad.
2: No, for sure. And it seems just like a lot of it's not being implemented in today's society. You know, no, because, kids are kids are growing because, up and you know, even biohacking going to
1: college. and like yeah, you know, just shit can happen quickly. And so we're all a big part of it. We're all building it. It's just you gotta be aware. So I guess back to your question, if I could make people more conscious, if that was possible, then they'd wake up and kind of think about some things, you know. Yeah. Right.
0: right. Well, speaking of pubic hair. Just kidding. (laughs) That's a good segment. Yeah. What are your big, you know, hairy, audacious goals with OPEX? What role will OPEX be playing in fitness in the years to come?
1: Yeah. Well, our big, uh, well, my big goal is to have a real big impact on fitness. You know, I really want to change the face of fitness. And maybe in a couple of years, I'll say that, like, we just want to uh, make fitness thrive again. So get fitness back to a point where the coach is a leader. That fitness is seen as not like a tool, but as something that's like breakfast to people. I want it to go in that direction. How do I do that? I have to make impacts where I believe I can make the largest impact that makes me sleep well at night. How do I do that? I coach coaches to coach hundreds and thousands of people to make impacts on their lives with the knowledge that I have or the shit that I've learned that I want them to kind of think about and be autonomous and do themselves. Big goal for 2017 is to open up OPEX gyms. They're gyms that are licensing our education. So within the gyms, they have autonomy to run the business the way they want, but it's pretty much an ID program design model. And we teach them how to do that. I picked that battle because I saw the struggle in all the coaches that I was teaching, that they were handcuffed in an industry in which the market was dictating what they were supposed to do for fitness. And I said, fuck that. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. When I started my career and why I was so fulfilling is that I was the leader in the community. I was the one that was helping people with good nutrition and exercise and leading them in the right direction. And then somewhere it got lost. Somewhere someone said, anyone can be a coach. Clients dictate what we want to do. They won't show up if they won't want to do a certain workout. Like, that's a problem. So I picked on the coaches area because I think the coaches can make the biggest impact within fitness, and that's what I, the big goal is for 2017 is to get 80-plus opex gyms open and running so that i can sleep well at night knowing that each of these places coaches are making a living and fulfilling themselves as uh, coaches
0: yeah well this just speaks to you and your program but we know a handful of coaches that have been through your program and i will say they run some of the best gyms in the state and they're also some of the best coaches
2: and also people that we know so awesome They all very much preach that holistic approach, you know, that it's not just like you touched on. It's all about the client. It's not about what does the client want? Okay, I'm going to build that for them. It's about, hey, here's what we need to do. And this is why. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, the thought that you want to leave people with or the the differences in it is that it's an area where the the owner, if it's a business practice, the owner and the coach and the client wins, because currently in fitness, it's only the owner and the client that's winning. The coach is not winning. Um, when it comes to percentages and a career and fulfillment and like, what's your four, 10, 20 year plan, nothing's built out for those people. Um, and they got to have that in place. So
2: James, I'm interested to know with, um, your knowledge and kind of staying on top of the technology in the Mm -hmm. health and fitness space, what do you see having the largest impact from a technology standpoint on fitness, but also just general health and wellness over the next, you know, five to 20 years?
1: Yeah, I do have my hands in a bunch of different research that's one at UC Irvine with a SPAR program that's out there, um, as well as through the US Air Forces and um, having some inside information as to what, because they're 10 years ahead of all that, you know, testing information that's required. The biggest issue that it comes down to for biotechnical work in which getting it to market is that it unfortunately has to be sold to big pharma or medicine in order for it to gain steam. And so just take a glucometer, right? Or a blood sugar measurement throughout the day. A massively valuable tool, massively valuable tool, right? That fucking no one uses unless they're super sick or they're going to die, right? So just think about it. It's like one little very low expensive thing that's like the technology of it now is, is retarded. Like you can put your finger on a pad and get your blood sugar score, right? So look at something as simple as that. Um, one that's going to make a massive impact over time are currently what I believe is going to come to practice is a is a wearable device that measures everything that's going on with you during the day all the time. And that device can be uploaded to your phone, to your own central cloud, to your doctor, to your coach or whatever that gives you information on readiness, you know, cytokine levels around training, sweat, lactate production or, you know, the full measurement. And there's people out there that are currently trying to come up with these devices right now, but they can't get to market because they need to make it pleasurable for medicine or big pharma in order for them to throw a whole bunch of money on it for fitness. We're going to have to use this doctored device, you know, to try to see how people are improving in fitness, which is, I mean, I'm, I got over 20 K of, you know, of uh testable testing equipment. That's out there that came from a medical laboratory. Why? because It doesn't matter for fitness, you know, people just wanted to use it for see if people are going to die, you know, because they make money off it, which is unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. So um, I visualize, you know, because I'm highly invested in as well. I invest in a company called the Fitbot that has a, a lot of promise for that data and data mining and collection of what humans are doing in a training program. But I think over time that wearable device will be connected to a training program application so that it'll just be voice communication. If you're my client. I get a track as to what's going on with you on my phone. I can see it. You can see it. And then I'm going to be like, yeah, based on today, this is what we're going to do. And I'm telling you what to do. And the the information based on all the data that's been mined will give you your program and spit it out on a like on a basis that's required. Then you got to go do it. And as you're doing, you're not even entering into your phone. Why? Because everything is being recorded in your phone. You don't have to like, punching your numbers. It's giving you all the data back to your coach. It's knowing the
2: sets, the reps, the rest times, the ratios, everything, everything,
1: Everything. because with the right kind of technology, like if I shake this phone, it's, I mean, you know, the power of it, It, outer space senses it, you know, that it's going a couple (laughs) of inches back and forth. So that's going to get strong enough where people can track that it's also going to come up. It's also going to bring up, I think with something that's particular to me, I'd love to see happen in CrossFit is for you know, on a Saturday afternoon for a competition in CrossFit, I'd like to see true power measured as the ultimate test of fitness. But I think we've lost the aspect of like that work capacity within CrossFit that was so beautiful from the initial stage of it. I don't know if you guys remember the measurement of Greg Menson doing the thruster pull-up workout, Mm -hmm. and Greg Glassman went through all the specifics of the math behind it. You know, if I don't guarantee it, it has to be done where, you know, you get eight guys and eight girls finishing in a workout in – madison wisconsin in five years or somewhere else on a saturday afternoon and it's not based upon their time the scoreboard up there is showing their total power output for the time that was developed and that's how you get scored in fitness so body weight temperature what weight was moved all that shit goes into connecting as to well as a wearable device because that's a true definition i would believe of fitness
0: that's crazy well if you not need any, time I say if you need any beta testers let us know you know a couple Obviously, guys <laughs>
1: The first two is the row thirty thirty times <laughs> <laughs> oh, like one minute.
2: Oh, we've come full circle. I'm gonna have to hit that this afternoon and report back. You know. Yeah,
1: no, I will always laugh about it in my program design course. was like, someone's got to come up with that little device that people just wear that tells you exactly the power mm-hmm. output that you're going through, the work that's being done. And no, it's not a Tendo unit or a hoop or any yeah. of these quasi, you know, starting points I call them on measurements. Um, it's going to be a little, it's going to be more robust and unbelievably savvy.
0: And this isn't uh, like government funded or they don't have their hand in this or anything, right? They're well, not, ironically, not tracking they us will
1: because you know, big brother is, uh, always around the corner based on all the information we know thus far with Snowden, yeah. that that's a lot more looking.
0: They're listening that's, right uh, now.
1: <laughs> we're no big fish in a pond, so we don't have to give a shit what we're saying right now. That's, that's right. True. <laughs> I don't think they give a shit about us.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you see that almost being as an AI interface, directing you know your workouts
1: yeah it's going to happen i mean we either you know uh kevin uh kelly talks about it he's the co-editor of Mm -hmm. wired he wrote a great book on called the inevitable that discusses that you're either going to mesh with technology or it's going to mess with you and i believe we're going to have to mesh with it meaning we're going to have to get okay with like recognizing that those things can do shit faster for us to figure out implementation of programming and assessment and trends and Whatnot that we can't go back over files over and over to kind of see. It'll quickly be able to answer that for us.
2: Are there any tools now that you recommend for people using either at the gym or for home use? Because you mentioned the glucometer, and Jake and I use that precision extra for the, the ketone and blood yep. glucose monitoring. Yep. Mm-hmm. That alone, I mean, I know a lot of people don't just want to prick their yep. finger for fun, but you know, when you're.
1: Well, it's not anymore. Now there's, well, the newest one's more expensive one is just your finger on a pad. Right. It's infrared.
2: Is that one doing ketones as well? No, it's not. Okay. No. That was the main reason for the precision extras. That's kind of yeah. go to for that. Yeah.
1: And the sad part about that, the reason why it's not doing it on that is because they need to sell a separate piece of equipment to sell to a different audience. That's mm-hmm. the exact reason. How sad is that? That's right. Crazy. But that, that's the world we're in, man. If they're like, Oh, why wait we we can't put three pieces in one thing and charge people 29. We got to make all of them twenty nine ninety nine for three different units that people need to look at. Why? Because there's money to be made based upon the prescription. Yeah.
2: So, are, are there any other tools like that that you um, are kind of a go to?
1: It's all, well, it's all relative to each person. I think the central nervous system stuff, you know, where people are going. Joel Jamison's uh, Bioforce Omega Wave, Hoop, which is a company that's looking at uh, constant twenty four seven surveillance of sleep disturbances and readiness based upon heart rate. I think some of these companies are going in the right direction that they'll have enough data over time to say, this is the kind of training that you may need to do, but there's going to be one unit that's going to come out over a long period of time, maybe five years or so. I would give it where the central nervous system is going to be measured efficiently. And that's the one I'm going to be putting stock in.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we were at the Bulletproof conference this past fall and of course, a lot of biohackers, a lot of biohacking technology, but you're right. It's a lot of tools, you know, it's like, man, if, I got a treasure chest of tools that they all do this one great thing. They're yep. all expensive, but mm-hmm. how do you condense it down? Yeah,
1: And If you take all those down and you bring it down into what one thing they're looking at, it's readiness. It's central nervous system readiness. Why? Because back to our initial point on fitness, it's about reproduction and survival. So if you figure out where people sit on that basic element of readiness and what I call resilience, it'll answer everyone's questions. Cause it all leads to that right?
0: Absolutely. I look forward to that day. But yeah, man. Switching gears a little bit.
1: Or maybe you... not. Maybe AI will be too strong and we'll have to defend. <laughs> that's true.
0: They say if you can't beat them, join them. At least so we'll be right, fit, man.
2: right? Good attitude. Yeah.
0: They
1: but... listened to that comment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they just signed you up. Hey, did you hear that? <laughs> we got one.
0: We got one. <laughs> oh, no. Is there any morning routines or disciplines you practice adhere to on a daily basis?
1: Yep. I do have one that I kind of uh, stick to. I've done it for a long period of time and only just to let you know, I've been asked that question probably 10 times now. Um, I think it's something that people are starting to recognize, which I really like. So I appreciate the question about uh, what I appreciate again in biology is rhythm, rhythm of life. It's something that's very obvious to us with the sun and the moon and tides and female cycles and growth. I mean, it's just, it's written amongst us. So I appreciate the question. I do have uh, morning routine. It's a wake up and water with some sea salt. Um, and then I move and move around, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, sometimes it's some assault bike and jump rope and some shit outside when it's warm and easy. Uh, when it's, you know, like 50 or 55, 60 in the morning, I'm inside I'm on the floor doing, let's call it quasi uh, gymnastics, uh, yoga movements, just kind of feel my body and playing with a whole bunch of things while I listen to NPR. And then I make protein for my, my family, basically, because the other shit doesn't necessarily have to be me, but I make protein for the morning time. And then I'm basically uh, on my bike out of the house. Um, a couple minutes after that, I bike to work and start my day for consulting and whatnot.
2: Nice. So it's just kind of that your water initially, kind of that quiet time where you're just kind of going through some movement, kind of getting. Yeah, aged. breathing,
1: feeling it, feeling things out, listening, you know call it what you want, you know, meditation, grounding, all those things. It's just it's like to kind of get up and see how things are, do a check. It's really just a time too, where I've had like, for example, the other night I went to a, uh, a hockey game on Saturday night. And uh, so I got home a little later than normally and I was in bed just around 10 um, and still had a little ringing in my ears from the, how loud the stadium was. But I get up the next morning and I'm just not as peppered as I am every other morning. So, you know, I just extend out that morning routine, you know, just kind of breathing. Didn't do a lot of movements, but just did a lot of breathing and focus stuff. And yeah, so I just allow it to be a something that I can stick to almost every day. I change up the course times when I start uh teaching on the roads. Uh so I can have that morning routine. It's pretty important.
2: Nice. That's Is awesome. it are you a early riser? Is that a five AM?
1: Yeah. No, I'm j if I could get up at four o'clock every day, if I was allowed I would, but uh <laughs> I stay in bed a little longer. <laughs> I get too tired at night then so you need to stay up a little bit longer so we can talk do yeah. stuff.
2: Are there any uh, I can see the books behind you so I know you're extremely well read. That's are just there sure. just a <laughs> few of them. I believe it is just a wall. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the most recommended books that you share?
1: Oh man, um I have two in front of me. I I you know I try to get at least one done per week and then if I have to spend adequate time during the week uh, to do it for some more in-depth one I'll I'll Give my I have my own little stuff in my head I'll try to give myself two weeks where it has to be done kind of thing or the gene book to me took me over two weeks uh, in order to complete as an example but I have a most recent blog post that I could explain all of it uh, so you can yeah. include it in your link when you send it out if you want because yeah, I go through a method of like what people can read for coaches and athletes alike they can read one book per month and it's a recommendation I make on that list and you could just knock it off per month and it's a great way of like at the end of the year getting 12 books in you know because I think uh, it's not about what you read, I don't think. It's about you retaining that information that improves yourself, you know, as a person. So, recommendations, there's just too many, um, unless you had some specific areas. But I have two that was just right in front of me that I was reading through uh, for uh, this morning when our coaches were talking about that Anti Fragile with Caleb, and then Franz Bosch's uh, new book, Strength Training and Coordination, and it's a great advice. Those two are just in front of me. So, I'll make those two as a recommendation. But depends upon what other areas lights your candle.
0: Do you have any retention tricks that you use in order to make sure you retain that information you're reading? Because that's something I know I I struggle with.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know if it helps other people, but I do this, you know, I just write the shit out of the book, you know, so for those notes that are in there, I take a second to write in the book, which is the reason why I like books to write in it about how that's personal to me or how that challenges my line of thinking. Mm. So for example, there is a uh, like one of the comments friends me in here, It doesn't make context, doesn't make difference, but it says this is illustrated, for example, by the fact that pupils learning a tennis stroke are above all encouraged to hit the ball hard once they have mastered the basic pattern. And so then I said in my own notes, like in weightlifting, except the pattern is more intense and not perfect before hard. Mm. See that so he was making a comment about motor control of how that possibly carries over to skills. But then I brought it back to my real life setting and was like, well, maybe, but maybe not. So then that makes me remember the point of what he made in there because I can reflect upon it in context for something that's personal to me. So I recommend that when you read a book of collecting and, and keeping it. Because if you're reading through 25 pages, you put it down, you're like, oh, I'm exhausted. You're probably not reading the right information you should be.
2: Right, no, I get like not a lot. you. I like that. I even find just that weekly, we've talked about that before, reading a book once a week and then kind of on Sunday evening, doing a weekly review of all your highlighted material, you know, really yes. helps kind of re-soak in yeah. all that info.
1: Yeah. So going beyond the highlighted material is actually what, uh, Norman Deutsch talks about in the brain that changes itself. It's the second level of mem- memory retention. So when you go back and start adding like layers to it, what you just did, my layer was the first layer. The second layer is, is going back and reviewing the whole thing again. That's how I teach coaches to do CCP because I teach them over three days all this like shit ton of information. So they leave and they're like, oh my God, you know. So then in two days, they have to go back and review the notes and then everything starts like regurgitating again uh, based upon that. So that's a great point.
0: Awesome. Well, we have a few friends that we sent uh, an email out to seeing if they had any questions for you because they've always read your stuff. And one of these recurring ones that always came up was what advice would you give your 20-year-old self?
1: My 20-year-old self, well, when I was 20, I was pretty depressed actually because I had uh, been just coming out of my rehabilitation with my uh, injury. So, to be completely honest, I wouldn't tell myself anything different. I'm pretty proud of the fact that I got, I got out of a really shitty place back then and I really contributed to fitness. That's you know, awesome. fitness fitness did it for me. So I wouldn't say anything different because I experienced some stuff during fitness then that brought me back to a new definition of myself. And then I wanted to investigate it in depth and then sure went down that route. So yeah,
0: a lot of these guys are younger, either CrossFit coaches or strength and conditioning uh, specialists. Okay. Yeah, any any advice say, for like
1: them? Yeah. I'd say you mentioned prior, I can tell you this on the other side of the mountain is sweeter than if you get guides and Sherpas to bring you up the mountain. So you got to fucking love the process. And if you don't love the process, you do not have the right priorities set up for the goals that you have in place. So the goals you have in front of you, if you don't love the process are probably uh, goals that have been given to you by someone else or, some, or goals you think you're supposed to achieve. So if you're young and you're 20 and you're just growing, love the process because you're going to continually learn shit. If you keep learning shit, you keep improving it, then that's mastery. But people who try to climb climb the mountain too fast, I can tell you it doesn't look too good up there. But when you get there after loving the process, it's very sweet look on the other side.
0: That's awesome. Well, we couldn't have written that any better because uh, that's a perfect ending point because that's right where we started. Yeah, Yeah. got to love the process. So, James, thanks for taking the time. Where can people find out more about you? Is there anything on the horizon for yourself or OPEX that people need to know about?
1: Ah, uh, well, I mentioned with our gyms and uh, so what we do day to day, you know, just in case people haven't heard about us, I'm, we're a global fitness education company. We teach coaches principles of fitness. So anyone who does our five courses of assessment, program design, life coaching, nutrition and business, you should be able to take those five courses and flourish as a coach no matter what you want to do by knowing the principles of all those as to how to apply a fitness. That's called the CCP. Secondly, we work with people online um, some obstacle course some special forces, some people who are endurance, but mainly people who are intense in fitness. We have 600 plus clients uh, with very high retention, so a very successful business uh, model of one-to-one coaching. We use FitBot as a tool for that to help people anywhere in the world with our coaches we have here in place. And then, of course, we have gyms for people who are interested in doing coaching underneath the OPEX name. Uh, Our website is opexfit.com. I have an Instagram uh, handle. You can watch what's going on in my lifestyle. It's jfitsopex
2: as well as uh, you can, uh, we can become friends on Facebook if you want. we got some connections. Awesome. Very cool. We'll make it happen. Well, James, where can, how about for people that maybe are interested in coaching or even the, the gym, possibly? Yeah, go to
1: OPEX, opexfit.com and just just uh, look around. we got lots of free shit to give away. Uh, that'll be a lead bag for you that gets you into our email distribution so you can keep abreast as to what's happening with Opex. And just know that you know, this is a company along with me that we're going to be around for a long period of time. We're doing this for the long game. That's based upon just my philosophy as well as our coaching philosophy. So it's a company that you can get behind and trust that we're not going to be flashy and entertaining and all over the place. We have one goal in mind, that's success for coaches.
0: That's awesome. Well, the world needs it and uh, we're thankful for it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it, James.
1: Okay. Take care.